All right, so Romans chapter 3, uh, we're in lesson 21, and uh, continuing with our series through the book of Romans, we're moving along, all right, to get someplace a little bit further every week, but um, this, is, um, this is the introduction to uh, one of the greatest sections that I believe is in all of the scriptures, though I know. There's no part that's better than another part or more important. It's all important. But in the same vein, there is, um, there's just a power in the passages that are coming up uh, starting our lesson next week as Paul moves into this like second half of, of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Um, just a whole track on redemption, why we have it, what it does, how it works in our life, um, so many so many things that are in this next section. And so um, tonight is a kind of a closing off of what he's been talking about in chapter 1, starting in verse 18, through uh, here this first part of chapter 3 with the fact that uh, your righteousness with God can only come by faith. Now, he said that, chapter 1, verse 17, that we who desire to have a righteousness, that the righteous shall live by faith. Um, so he's, he's made that declaration, but now he's been addressing what I call the invisible opponents, uh, projected people that are seemingly, it must be, if he would, or he wouldn't be addressing it, in the church in Rome, or that uh, might come to the church in Rome after people find out that Paul's been in Rome, which he wants to be there, then all those who hate Paul are going to book a ticket to Rome so that they can try to undo what Paul's been teaching. They did, in some ways, kind of follow him around. They would try to go to the churches after he'd been there and tear them down, put them back into uh, the bondage of legalism. And so this could be, in some ways, a preparation for the church so that they're ready when the legalizers do come and show up, because he spends so much time on that subject of works versus faith. Law versus grace. And so uh, we'll be looking at that as we go into these next chapters, all right? So chapter 3, and I'm going to begin in verse 9, and we'll read down through about verse 30, 26. So chapter 3, verse 9, what, what then? Are we Jews, so Paul is throwing himself into that arena, are we Jews any better off? <laughs> no, not at all. Let me think that would pretty much tick some people right off. Yeah. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. 
They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow, that's a, whew, it's a real summation of uh, culture outside of Christ. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Long sentence. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we'll pick up with the rest of that later. All right, so Paul has established here that morality doesn't get you saved, legalism doesn't get you saved. So as he comes down here now to chapter 3 and verse 9, the question has been, in a sense, thrown to him or, in a sense, imagined in his mind that his opponents are saying, yeah, but where's our benefit? What do we get out of this? We're Jews. What's our benefit? And basically he says, nothing. Now, yes, He's going he's gonna to say, he's already said, that from the Jews come the oracles of God, Jews have. And later on in chapter 9, he's going to talk about the things that come because of the Jewish nation, what God has given them, what God has used them for. And so, yes, there was a, a purpose in the plan of God for Israel. And there is a future purpose for Israel. But they don't have a righteousness without Jesus Christ. They need to be saved, as Peter says it in Acts chapter 15, that they will be saved, or we will be saved, even as they, that is the Gentiles, are. So he actually puts the Gentiles ahead of the Jews. We will be saved even as they are. So they got saved by faith, the Gentiles. And the church decided uh, in their council that, okay, the Gentiles don't have to follow the law. But then they would go back and forth on that and try to put them back under. They don't have to obey the law. But Jews that get saved 
do still have to live by the law. And so that was part of the way that they were thinking. And Peter boldly makes the statement, no, we Jews are saved by grace through faith, just like the Gentiles. No, wait, 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 wait. No, we're first. No, grace through faith is first. Not your race, not your lineage, not your ethnicity, not your background, not your status, not your gender, not your age, thank God, not your what, money, nothing, nothing, none of that matters. One thing, by grace, through faith. If that's how the Gentiles got saved, then that's how the Jews need to get saved. You would be surprised, and I will not name names, but there are still people that preach that the Jews have a special way to God, that they have a, a, an access that we, the Gentiles, don't have. It's called dual covenant, and dual covenant theology is popular among a circle of people. But... Um, yeah, but uh, it violates the scriptures that there is no dual covenant. There's one covenant. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's faith in him, not faith in your sacrifice, not faith in the offering that you would make, not faith in your ability to do something. That we're gonna we're gonna talk here about the the righteousness uh, that that we need to have a a righteousness that's of a different class is the way I I like to explain it. There was a sense there was a a quote righteousness that the Jewish people could get when they offered their sacrifices. It was external. It was temporal. But there was a a right standing with God that if a a Jewish person or is an Israeli out in, the, out in the wilderness or later on during the time of the kingdom would go to the temple and they would offer their sacrifice and their heart was in what they were doing. Uh, there was an external righteousness that was given to them. They were accepted by God. They were brought into a relationship. They could walk away. The priest would say, your sins are forgiven. Till you sin again. <laughs> that was basically it to his again. And then you got to bring another sacrifice. So they, there, was a, there was a righteousness, but it wasn't a true righteousness. It wasn't a righteousness that comes from the inside. And that's the righteousness that Paul is going to be talking about, what he's going to be introducing here and then developing all the way through chapter 8. So um, in this section, again, we're starting... In verse 9, uh, in this section, he, he begins a list. So we start off, what then? And it's a little bit different than his common God forbid. Um, but it's, it's, again, it's a very strong exclamation that is meant to uh, wake you up and rebuke you. So that's what it's for. What then? Are we Jews any better off than who? 
than the Gentiles. And what's his answer? One word. No. Now let me back that up. Not at all. So if, if no's not strong enough, not at all follows. And so Paul is very adamant about this. And he himself is a Jew. But Paul is not glorying in his Jewishness any longer. His racial heritage, his religious heritage means nothing. It's true, he is. And he can have that, that national heritage, and there's nothing wrong with that racial ethnic background that he has. But as far as a relationship with God, nothing they're all on the same plane. So we have this, this demonstration of God's uh, graciousness that he would accept those who were arrogant and proud and filled with their own self, and he would also save those who were absolutely downcast and at the bottom of everything. Mom Sprague had a word for that. She said, the ground is level at the cross. If you're haughty and proud, he'll just bring you down. And if you're buried under everything and feel like you were the lowest thing in the earth, he will lift you up. Because the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Mom Sprague. So anyway, I don't know that she didn't get that from someone, but to me, it came from her. So now, now Paul's going to go through in a list here uh, six different Old Testament passages that he's going to use to, in a sense, rebuke the Jews. And so he's going to go from one statement to the next. And he's not wanting them to say, well, that's all the Gentiles. Yeah, they're, 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 they're this and they're that and they're all of those things. And no, he's not going to let them out of that because he starts it off with, we're no better off. We have already charged, what's he say, into verse 9, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then he goes, as it is written. Now, when he says, as it is written, what is he talking about? Old Testament. I know Pastor Bob and I have talked about this quite a bit, about how people have tried to say, we have no more use for the Old Testament. I know you can buy Bibles that don't have the Old Testament in them. That doesn't mean it's not necessary. Because like I was saying to Grace earlier this evening, uh, <laughs> that's the Bible Jesus read, so... He did not read the King James Bible. He read, he read the Old Testament. So that's what Paul preached out of. And Paul is not going to let the Jews out of this. They would like to say, well, all of these, all of these indictments that you're making, Paul, these are, they're, they're talking about Gentiles, those other nations, the heathen, or you say it really good, the heathen. The heathen. No. This is including the Jews. He's not going to let them out of this. All. And then he makes a statement, what? As it is written. So don't forget those first three words. As it is forward. Written. Okay. As it is written. 
So, all are guilty, or as my title of my lesson tonight, and all need grace. So, first, we've read this part before. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Well, come on, Paul. Let up a little bit. Surely, I mean, there's some, somebody was seeking for God. Really? With their whole heart? All the time? Continually? Seeking for God? David was a man after God's own heart. Never sinned. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Did I say that? No. <laughs> no. So where does he get this from? This comes right from Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. So I put that down in your notes. So here's what Psalm 14 says. The fool says in his heart, notice David didn't say the Gentile says or the heathen says. He says, the fool says, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. David. Verse 2, Psalm, Psalm 14, verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. Notice he didn't say the Gentiles. To see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Now, in the, in the psalm, this carries a negative implication to it. God looks down to see if there are any. And what? And there aren't. All right, so that's, uh, that's the implied response to this. The negative answer is, no, there are not. So that's what Paul was saying. Verse 12 goes on. Uh, this is, goes back to Romans 3, verse 12. It says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. The word worthless in the Greek language means corrupted or spoiled, as, as you would use that for spoiled fruit or spoiled milk, whatever. Corrupted, spoiled. No one does good, not even one. So now he goes back to Psalm 14 and verse 3. And quoting David, he says, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. Basically, Old Testament word for the New Testament word, worthless. Corrupted, spoiled. There is none who does good, not even one. So Paul is just directly quoting David from Psalm 14. And so he's, he's saying this is, this is recorded. This is written. And he's not talking about people living in a pagan society. He says in verse 13, this is top of your page two. This is back to Romans chapter 3 and verse 13. Romans 3.13 says, their, their, their throat is an open grave. That's a quotation from Psalm 5. Verse 9, where David says, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. So, I don't want to be gross, but if there's a body deteriorating in a grave and you open it it's pretty vile isn't it well what Paul is saying 
<clears throat> what Paul is saying is that's exactly what comes out of their mouth. Why? Because inside, they're full of ugliness. They're full of this vile evil. And when they open their mouth, it's like opening a grave with a decaying body inside. It just stinks, right? And it stinks to God. And so this is what comes out. Think of some of the some of the uh, conflicts that Jesus had with the Pharisees and just the, the arrogant, you know, almost sarcastic attitude which with which they treated him. Sometimes <laughs> not even, not, not hidden, veiled, not veiled at all. You know, you're, a, you're the devil. And um, Jesus turned it around on them. But uh, they plotted his death because they could not stand. Jesus healed a man who had a withered hand, and it made them angry. He cast a demon out of a man who had been coming to synagogue, and immediately afterwards, they met and said, what are we going to do about this guy? And that was just the beginning of his ministry. And the further it went, the worse it got. Yeah, there's this evil. And when they open their mouth, it's like an open grave. The rest, second half of Romans 3.13, I hope you can follow me back and forth here. On there. The red is Romans, the blue is Old Testament. And it says, uh, the second half of Romans 3.13 says, They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Now, an asp is one of the poisonous serpents, one of the most common poisonous serpent that was in the area of Palestine. And so, in the New Testament era, and so when they talk about poisonous snakes, they're usually using the the word asp. And so Psalm 140 verse 3 says, they make their tongues sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Again, <laughs> Paul is not quoting directly, but he's pulling things out. Now again, remember, um, they didn't have chapter and verse in the scrolls of the Old Testament. They knew where the books were, and they knew where some of the breaks in the books were, but there were scrolls, and so they would go to the scroll. Sometimes they would had, had uh, purchased a, a book, which was kind of different than ours, but it was actually made on, um, on parchment or some kind of vellum, which is like a a, uh, a hide, goat, goat skin, rolled very thin, and they would write on that in the form of a book. But they didn't have chapter and verse, so Paul can't, can't go to Psalm 140 and verse 3. He knows that this is there. He knows these statements are there. And so he is, in some ways, he's paraphrasing what the Old Testament says. He said, they purposefully use their words to bring about harm 
like a serpent. Listen, the asp is poisonous. Its venom is deadly. Supposedly that's what killed Cleopatra. Just small bite. And uh, deadly. But here's the thing. It's not accidental. The serpent does say, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Excuse me, I didn't. Are my, are, are my teeth poisonous? I didn't know that. Sorry. No. And neither are these men. And so these arrogant ones who revel in their sin, they know what they're doing is wrong. There's very few people who are doing wrong who don't know it's wrong. They know. But they do it anyway. Now, I know you've never done that. Right. Knowing something is wrong and do it anyway. I know you don't, but you know people who do. So, again, this is, this is not accidental. So what Paul is saying here, this is, this, is the, this is humanity. This is how people live. And they're all guilty before God. Verse 14, back to chapter 3. Romans 3, verse 14 says, Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. All right? That's a quotation from Psalm 10. Verse 7, where David writes, His mouth is filled with cursings and deceit and oppression, and under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. More about the mouth. There's a lot of stuff in here about the mouth, isn't there? Why? Because a lot of our sin comes out of our mouth. And, you know, it's the things that we say that give away the heart that's on the inside, the way that we think, you know, the things that we occupy our life with. A lot of times it comes out in the mouth. James chapter 4, I didn't write the whole passage in here, but just verse 8. James 4 verse 8, almost all of you know this. But no human being, no man, can tame the tongue. It is restless evil, full of deadly poison. And it comes from the New Testament. Yeah. So, yeah, the tongue is uh, unruly. If you've ever heard Rick Renner teach on this passage on the tongue, you'll remember his illustration is this rock python that he had that was absolutely uncontrollable and broke its cage and he decided to get it out one day and play with it it's one of these you know this. all right that's a rick renner story and i'm glad i wasn't there because sorry rick can't help you it's like i'm not i'm not getting in on this you know you know so anyway so they wrestled with the thing for a while. But uh, it obviously, he lived. <laughs> All right. So anyway, so what David here is saying, Paul pulls out. And he talks, again, it's the tongue. It's the tongue. It's this evil thing that needs to be controlled. James goes on and he says, you know, what is, what is it with this tongue? With it, you... Bless God and then you turn around and curse people. What, what is that? 
it needs to be controlled. And the only way to control your tongue is by a renewed mind. Yeah, you got, you got the spirit on the inside, but there's a lot of good Christians who need to control their tongue. So, yeah, because it has to go through the renewed mind because it's your mind that controls what comes out of that mouth. Okay, verse 15. Paul goes on, going back to Romans chapter 3, verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Again, just talking about these people, now he turns to the feet and their path, their walk, the, the way that they live. So the, the walk has to do with your lifestyle, the way that you do things. Uh, the, the directions that you take in your life. And so he says, their feet are swift to shed blood, their paths are ruined in misery, all the way of peace they have not known. This is a quotation from Isaiah 59. And so we'll go to Isaiah 59, verse 7 says, their feet run to evil, they're swift to shed innocent blood, and their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation and destruction are in their highways. That means the paths that they take. Verse 8, the way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have not made their roads, or they have made their roads crooked, and no one treads on them knows peace. So these, these are people who have plotted their life is not an accident. I mean, every one of us have those experiences where I didn't mean to do wrong, but I did. I mean, really? Uh, you knew it was wrong, but you, you you didn't really mean to do it. You're you suddenly you're just there, and and but that's not these people. These people plot it. They they plot to overthrow. They plot to destroy people's um, the people's lives. They plot to destroy people's reputations. They use their their abilities to destroy and tear down. Um, there are people who feel better when you feel worse, and you know and they, and you know they cannot take the fact that you are being blessed or you are being used of God, and so they've got to do something to tear you down, even if it means making stuff up, and um, trying to destroy your character. So what does he say at the end of all of this? <laughs> the end summation really is the. F- the fullness of everything. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Again, that's Romans 3, verse 18, in the red there, or brown. (laughs) Depends on what paper you have. There's no fear of God. If there was a fear of God in their eyes, none of the rest of that would even be there. That would change all of this. The fear of God says, I will not do evil, because when I do evil, evil comes back on me. I will not do evil because it displeases God. The fear of God, the fear of the Lord is something that we don't like to talk about because, well, we're faith people, you know, and I'm the righteous of God in Christ and I've got this. There is the fear of God. And the fear of the Lord is absolutely essential because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, well, I got a lot of wisdom. I'm, I'm seeking wisdom. Well, then you better start with the fear of the Lord. And put God in the right place in your life. And it's far beyond just having respect or reverence for God. 
It is, I do not want to live my life in a way that is not pleasing to him. Now, if that is controlling your life, none of the rest of this will be a problem. But obviously, it's not. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Again, this is a quotation, bottom of your page two, from Psalm 36 and verse one. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So this sin is literally talking to this person. This is this person is totally occupied with those things. Why? Because there is no fear of God in their eyes. Okay, so page three. Now he moves on. And he's going to make his transition here to some of the greatest, as I said, the greatest statements that we find uh, in actually in the New Testament. This this section chapter. 3 through chapter 8. But verse 19, top of your page, says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are, what? Under the law. Who would that be? Oh, that would be the Jews. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, Because the Gentiles are not under the law. The law was never meant for the Gentiles. It was never meant to be preached to them. It was never meant to be taught to them. The Jews were to live under the law as an example of what it is that pleases God so that the Gentiles would have a witness before their eyes and thereby seek to follow the same God that the Jews lived under. But it didn't work that way. So, the law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth... Oh, it's easy to preach to the heathens or the Gentiles. It's easy to preach to them because they're so wicked and evil. It just, I mean, it's on the outside, but not us Jews. But yet it is because the law was written to the Jews. And like I've said, one third of the law is a sacrifice, which means you broke it. So here, and so God gave them sacrifices because they were going to break the law. And so just the fact that they say, I follow the law, well, that means that you offered a sacrifice, which means you broke the law. So all of that comes back on them so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It's not just Gentiles accountable to God. As, and this, in the reference here, accountable to God is, is, in a sense, a reference to judgment. The whole world is accountable to God. And you are going to have to answer. That's what he's saying to these Jewish legalists. Verse 20. For by the works of the law, we've talked about this before. And he's going to get into a whole chapter. Chapter 4 is basically a whole chapter just on The works of the law versus grace and faith. And so he goes, for the works of the law, no man, no human being, the Greek word anthropos, which means men and women, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge 
of sin. Now he's going to develop this a little bit further. But what do we mean by the knowledge of sin? Well, the knowledge of sin simply is what the law tells you you're wrong. Yeah, but I, I, don't, I don't want to do that. Well, you're wrong. So the law brings the knowledge of sin. The Gentiles and those who lived before Moses, they didn't have the law. And so there was a lot of things that were sin that they didn't know about. Does it mean they weren't sin? No, they just didn't have the what? Knowledge of sin. They didn't know all the things that were wrong. They didn't know why all these things were going so wrong in their lives. But there was divine righteousness, but without the law, the people didn't know. And so by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. So you cannot do enough of the law to be justified or the word made righteous. You can't do the law to become righteous. You can do the law and God will accept you. And there is a, as I said, a temporal righteousness that comes. But the fact is, you got there by making a sacrifice and you're going to have to stay there by making more sacrifices because you cannot be made righteous. You can do righteous things. How many of you, before you got saved, did some righteous things? Some, some, yeah, you did some good. We do. But didn't get you anywhere. You can do good and have no relationship with God. There's a lot of people who do good all of their life are going to end up in hell. Because it's not your righteous deeds. It's the righteousness that you gain through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that we can be acceptable. It's not righteous deed, because by no man's righteous deeds will they be accepted. All they do is point out your sin. There are none that are justified. And so through the knowledge of sin, and only through the law, is one able to discern why a person is in sin. Only because of the law. So what does Paul say in Galatians, which we'll talk about as we get further on? He says, the law was given to you as a tutor to lead you to Christ. It was supposed to frustrate you. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm not, I keep failing. This is what I'm supposed to be. I can't get there. I can't get there. I need a redeemer. I need a savior. I need someone to get me out of this. So they have the law. All right. So now he's going to move into this next section in verses 21 through 26. And so I've kind of broken this down for us. And we're just going to go through these verses. Verse 21 is one of the classic verses that we should have in our heart as New Testament believers. But now a righteousness, because there is no article here, but now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness. 
a righteousness of God has been manifest. The word manifest is a word which means to make evident, to be able to see it. A righteousness, to be able to discern it or see the distinction. There was a righteousness, a self-righteousness. There was a righteousness that you could do a righteous deed, but it was not accepted as righteousness before God. But now there is a righteousness that does come from God, that is apart from, which literally means has no part in, has, not, has no relationship with the law. This righteousness that you have received through faith has nothing to do with the law, only that the law brought Christ to the cross. And through the law, he was offered before the Lord. His death was accepted by God as the law demanded. He died by the law, but we live by grace. And so it's not the law that we have to follow. There is a law that we now have. It's a, I have no other word for this. It's a class of righteousness that is different from, distinct from, not the same as the righteousness that the Jews talked about that they had concerning the law. As Paul, Paul says, concerning the law, I was perfect. I was righteous. I was without blemish. But he wasn't. And so all of those things were his own self-glorification, edification. But they did not get him anything. Now, here's the question. Is this something new? So Paul is going to answer the question. And so he said there's a righteousness, a class of righteousness that is, has nothing to do with, is separate from the law. And those of his opponents are going to say, I never heard of that before. And he said, yeah, you did. Because the law and the prophets already gave testimony to it. it it's there. Just go back and read it. It's in Moses. It's in Isaiah, it's in Jeremiah, it's in Daniel, it's in Ezekiel. Go back and read it. It's there. A righteousness that is not a part of the law. That has nothing to do with. It's distinct from the law. And it was there. And the law and the prophets bear witness. No, it's not new. And this is the righteousness that we have received. And this is where I want to read from Ephesians chapter 3. Paul talks about this. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul presents in here. You actually need to, for, to get the whole context of this, you need to start reading in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 14. But I'm not going to take all that time. But you need to read it. So put it there in your notes. Ephesians 2.14, read down through Ephesians 3, verse 12. But I'm just going to start in Ephesians 3.1. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So this was hidden. It was a mystery. What is a mystery? A mystery in biblical terms, a mystery is something that's been true. You just didn't know it. You didn't know what was there. It was true all along. It just didn't know. And so this is the mystery of Christ, which was not made known. Look at that, verse 5. Not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Old Testament people didn't know it. It was there. It was written. But they didn't know what it was about. Isaiah says, or I'm sorry, Peter says, chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, verse 10, they, Old Testament prophets, wrote about it. They knew that what they were writing wasn't about them. They longed to know what it was about, but God didn't reveal it to them. And so this truth was always there. Paul said, yeah, it was in the law and the prophets. It's not new. It's not something. Paul is not proclaiming a new Christianity, a new religion. I've heard people try to say Paul created what we know today as Christianity, that he was the author of... No, he wasn't. He wrote wrote about the Old Testament. And there's a lot of people that want to say that what Paul did is he changed the words of Jesus and started his own religion. So we ought to call it Paulism instead of Christianity. No, it's not. Paul was just given the responsibility to declare it and to write things that others were not given the insight to write. And the Old Testament prophets was hidden from them, although they wrote about it. Let me go on. Verse 6, this mystery, here's the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What is that saying? The mystery is that the Gentiles get to be received. The backside of that is you Jews are not exclusive. Uh, That's not fair. We don't like that. We want to be God's people. Well, you're not. If you're in the church, you and the Gentiles together are the body of Christ. If you're not in the church, you don't belong. You're just as lost as any Gentile. A Jew without Christ is just as lost as any Gentile who's never heard of the message at all. No difference. But they want to be different, but they're not different. And so we revel in the fact that the Gentiles have been accepted. Amen? Are we all happy about that? Most of us are Gentile in here. Don't have Jewish roots. But to the Jewish people, it's like, you're no longer exclusive. It's not all about you. It's about the body of Christ. There's one body made up of Jew and Gentile. We are fellow Heirs. You got to go back and read chapter 2, especially verses 14 on to the end of chapter 2 of Galatians. You've got to. Not right now. Don't go back and read it now. I'm sorry, Ephesians. Ephesians, well, Galatians 2 is good too. But 
Ephesians 2, verses 14 through the end of that chapter. But Paul goes on, verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. I didn't make this up. God gave me the grace. This is my grace. This is what he gave me to do. A gift of God's grace. Again, a multiplication of terms, gift and grace. Which given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, end of verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Oh, yeah. And to the Jews that want to listen also. The unsearchable riches of Christ. This is not a message just for the Gentiles. It's for the Jews also. And think of it that way. It's not that it's for the Jews and maybe for the Gentiles. No, it's for the Gentiles and the Jews also. One message. Verse 9, Ephesians 3, verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of this mystery, hidden for ages in God. Who hid it? Was it because of man's ignorance? Did the prophets hide it? Did Moses hide it? No, God hid it. Why? Because there was a time. And we're going to talk about that here in just a few minutes. There was a time that this was going to be revealed. Hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10, Ephesians 3.10. So that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God hid this, even from the angels. They didn't get it. They didn't know that God was going to join together Jew and Gentile into one body. They knew that God was going to redeem mankind. That was, that was told in the Old Testament. And they knew that this message was for all because that was also prophesied in the Old Testament, but that God would bring together and remove the wall of partition, the dividing thing, which was the law. The law was the dividing thing between Jew and Gentile, and he, the Bible says, abolished it. Ephesians 2.15, he abolished the law. In his own flesh. What does it mean to abolish? The Greek word means to make it not work. He didn't destroy it because Jesus himself said, I didn't come to destroy the law. But to do what? Fulfill it. And once it's fulfilled, what did he do with it? Rendered it useless. He nullified it. Just like you would do a law that somebody wrote that is an evil law. And so the authorities get together and they nullify the law. Well, that's what Jesus did. The law did its work. It put Jesus on the cross. That's what it was supposed to do. It pointed out our sin. It pointed out our need for a Savior, a Redeemer, somebody to rescue us. It did that. And then once it did it, it was fulfilled. And Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. And once it's fulfilled, it was taken out of the way. Romans chapter 10, verse 4 that we who have received Jesus Christ, Romans 10, 4, um, the law, 
Why did I? That just dropped out of my mind. Romans 10, 4. It's there. I'll think about it. It'll come back to me in a minute. All right, so let's go back to our paper. So this righteousness that we have received, this righteousness that we have received is by faith in Jesus Christ, not by our works, not by what we do, not by what we don't do, not by offering a sacrifice, not by going through all the ritual, not by keeping everything that needs to be done. No, it comes how? By faith. This class of righteousness that is apart from the law is ours by faith. All right? And it's there for what? Romans chapter 3, verse 22, by uh, righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. So Paul multiplies. He's already said faith. Now he says for all who believe. By faith, for all who believe. Which the same Greek word for faith is just a verb. For all who believe. But here's, here's the point. Individual faith is absolutely essential. It's not that Jesus did it so everybody's saved. No. Individual, if you don't believe, then you don't receive of this. You say, well, I believe Jesus went to the cross, but I don't see it has anything to do with me. Then you are not in. Because you have to identify with the Savior. You have to accept the one who has paid with his blood. And then he makes the statement, and look toward the bottom of your page three, for there's no distinction. What do you mean? What do you mean? This, this is available, the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, there is no distinction. Uh, with what? What are you talking about, Paul? With Jew and Gentile? No, you don't have a separate way. You don't have a separate opportunity. You can't keep the law and be saved. The Jews cannot keep the law and be saved. In fact, today, they can't keep the law at all. Because there's no temple and no sacrifice. There's no possible way for a Jew to keep the law. That was going to happen within just a few years of Paul's writing of this. About ten years. There's no distinction. What? For all of sin. All who? Well, all Gentiles. All you Gentiles have sinned. No, all who? All Jew and Gentile. All everyone. All means all. Yeah. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just the Gentile heathens that have fallen short. It's the Jews themselves who fall short of the glory of God. Top of your last page. And what? And are justified by his grace as a gift. You're justified by his grace as a gift. It's like, isn't grace enough? Yeah. Isn't a gift enough? Yeah. But this is grace as a gift. So... The idea behind the word gift is, is a word which means something that's freely given. It's based on, on no reason, it's just given. And grace is God doing for us what we are not able to do. It's God using his power for our benefit. Wow. So God used his power for our benefit as a free gift. Didn't cost you a thing. 
God didn't ask you for one thing. Except what? Believe. Believe. And so this gift of grace, it just talks about this, no other word for it, freeness of this righteousness that God has given us. And how does this, how does this work? Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption, it's a Greek word, uh, apolutrosis. And what that means is not just setting you free, but setting you free so you cannot be a prisoner again. Setting you free so that you cannot be made a prisoner again. Setting you free as a slave so you cannot be made a slave again. Wow. We have been redeemed. Redeemed from death. Redeemed from sin. Redeemed, set apart, and redeemed from what else? Redeemed from what else? The law. We've been redeemed from the law. And we cannot be put back in bondage to it again. Now that's magnified elsewhere. But again, things will take up as we continue through Romans. Look at verse 25. Whom God, talking about Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, big word. Throw it out in your next conversation around the dinner table, you know. Thank God, Jesus is my propitiation. You're what? Do I need to wash your mouth out with soap? <laughs> propitiation, the Greek word hilasterion, um, it means to satisfy the wrath. It doesn't mean to excuse and it doesn't mean to set aside. God didn't excuse or set aside your sin. He killed his son. He took the blood. The word hilasterion is the exact word that's used for the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. So the Greek name for the mercy seat is the hilasterion. The place of propitiation. The place where, what did you do on the mercy seat? You did what? Poured the blood. Where'd you get the blood? From the animal that you just killed. So that this blood is testimony that death has taken place. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. Beautiful story. The Pharisee and the sinner, the publican. Jesus went in temple and there was this man, publican, laying on the ground, crying out before God, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. A Pharisee standing there with his hands raised to heaven say, God, I'm glad I'm not like that person. That I am not a publican or a tax collector or a woman, God forbid. <laughs> Full of himself. In the Greek language, the Greek word there actually says praying to himself. He wasn't praying to God. He was talking to himself. <laughs> so... And this man cried out, have mercy on me. It's, we translate it, have mercy, but that's not what the word is. The word is hilasteria, a form of it. It means be my mercy seat. I need a mercy seat. I need some place where the blood is poured out and your wrath is removed. 
I need, I need propitiation. And so Jesus says, one man went to his home justified. Who was made righteous? Not the, not the Pharisee, the tax collector, who saw Jesus as his what? Propitiation. You're my mercy seat. And what's the last statement there? And I'm going to close at the end of this, this passage. Whom God, <clears throat> whom God put forward as a propitiation, the satisfying of his wrath, to be received how? It's received how? By faith. Not by making your own sacrifice. Not by killing an animal and having the blood taken in and poured on the... Oh, you can't do that anymore, can you? There is no ark with a mercy seat. So what are you going to do with your blood? What are you going to do with that blood? Pour it on the ground? There's no mercy seat. Why? Because we don't need it. We don't need it. Why? Because Jesus is not only our redemption, he is also our propitiation. He's the mercy seat. He is the place where all of the wrath of God has been removed. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, or let's say it Paul's way, whether you are Gentile or Jew. All right, so Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you that you show us this incredible grace that you have shown in our life. Whether you did all of this and all you ask of us is faith. All you ask us to do is believe. We don't even have to be able to understand it, explain it. We don't have to be able to, to uh, fully present all the reasons behind what you've done for us. All we have to do is accept it. Father, we believe, and we thank you for the righteousness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. But Father, we also pray that you'll help us to share this message with others, that they too may find true redemption through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.